0: Bienvenidos back to Diferente. I think it's so serendipitous that I am releasing this episode today, a year after I came to a very harsh realization about myself, and I was confronted with what I have been believing for so long. For so long, I believe that... To be beautiful, I had to be skinny, have a flat stomach and a round plump ass, and of course, nice boobs. But long ago, I let go of the hope for larger breasts. Eventually, I accepted to love my girls as they are, and I moved on to be annoyed with my belly because I don't have a six-pack. Of course, it didn't help that for years, on days my belly wasn't laying flat, my mom would poke my side and say, you're looking very full. And to make things worse, I started judging people this way, not as overtly as my mom, but I began making assumptions about people's self-worth by the size of their body. Measuring their value like it was something that had anything to do with a scale. Thankfully, I had a serious reality check last year. And because of that, I have started noticing the ill effects of diet culture and body shaming were all around me. On TV, on Instagram, in plastic surgery commercials that were on the radio, my friends who were dieting and complained about their bodies, and in my own home. Me, looking at myself in the mirror, judging, telling myself that I need to be more fit, less round, of course, have a flat stomach, back to that. All of this has been too much. I've had enough. Of course, that is easier said than done because undoing 30 years of being told that a quote fit or sculpted body is the way to happiness is probably going to take a lifelong process. So that's when I started raising questions about my beliefs, my biases, and I knew that if I was going to truly live a different life and practice what I preach, I would have to confront my own fat phobia. So I invited Christy Harrison to help kick things off because I know I'm not alone in this journey, and I want to share it with you. Christy is an anti-diet registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor and the host of Food Psych podcast. She specializes in helping people make peace with food and reclaim the time and energy they lost to the life thief that is diet culture. Get ready. This episode might cause you to question your beliefs, but I know you're not afraid to shake things up. Bienvenidos. Welcome to Diferente. My name is Maribel Quesada-Smith. I'm an expert at questioning everything who wants to bring more color into your life. I'll be coming at you every week with a little humor and a mountain of passion to share with you stories and ideas related to life, culture, creativity, and business that will inspire all of us to explore different perspectives. Don't be surprised if you find yourself motivated to shake things up. That's known to be a side effect of the Diferente life, and it's contagious. Now let's get to it. Hi, Christy. Welcome to Diferente. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. I'm happy to have you. So I want to dive right into it because I've been thinking about this topic for a long time and I have a lot of questions for you. I, I have a lot of things that mm-hmm. I want us to talk about. That's right. I know you live in Brooklyn, New York, but is that where you grew up? No, I grew up in the Bay Area in California. Ah, no kidding. We were just there actually in San Francisco. So what brought you to the East
1: Coast? Uh, it was mostly journalism. I My first career was as a journalist and there really weren't Um, When I graduated college, there really weren't any full-time journalism jobs or they were very few and far between in the Bay Area. So I worked at like an alt-weekly newspaper for a little while and I knew that the publishing industry was all in New York and I wanted to go. And I happened to also be dating someone who was from New York at the time who was interested in moving back. So we did like a cross-country road trip and moved to New York in 2004. So how was
0: the adjustment period for you? Because I imagine going from the west to the east is just a totally
1: different ball game? It is, it is. I was I mean, definitely the first couple of years were a big adjustment. Uh, like my first winter in New York, I was trying to wear a cute vintage pea coat that had no lining. <laughs> like it was not appropriate <laughs> for winter. and I was like, "Why am I freezing all the time?" And yeah, did not have my layering game down or understand how clothing worked in the. In, <laughs> the winter here. (laughs) It was rough. Um, It was tough adjusting to like the lifestyle too, because everything is so much more expensive. Everything is harder in New York. Like it's just, you can't easily pop over to a grocery store with your car and park in a parking lot and get your groceries and take them back and park in your garage and like easily bring them into your house. It's like, nobody has cars. I mean, I now have a car finally, but I didn't when I first moved here. Oh, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I used to live in
0: D.C. and I had a grocery cart for that specific reason. So before you went back to school to be a dietitian, I know you were a journalist. Tell me a little bit more about that part of your life.
1: Yeah, so I just have always loved writing. From the time I was, you know, seven, I was like, what do I want to be when I grow up? An author, a writer. Like, that was always what I said. Uh, when I first started my career as a journalist, I was more interested in, like, the arts and um social justice issues and like news and politics, I was not really that interested in food and nutrition at all. And it wasn't until college, like at late college, really my last year and then into the year after college that I developed an eating disorder and suddenly became obsessed with food and nutrition because of that. So that's how I sort of got off on the food and nutrition beat in journalism. I didn't go back to school to become a dietitian until six or seven years after um, graduating college. So I worked as a magazine editor um, for that time and ended up working at Gourmet Magazine, which is, you know, vaunted sort of historic food magazine that was running for 75 years. And they ended up closing... Like two and a half years after I got there. So, oh oh my gosh. (laughs) And I knew, you know, we could all kind of tell, like, read the writing on the wall that something was going to, something was coming. It was after the um, economic crash of 2008. And so everybody kind of knew something was up. I didn't realize they were going to close the whole magazine, but I did sort of think my job might be on the chopping block because I was one of the more recently hired, you know, at two and a half years, still one of the more recently hired people because there had been people there for like 35 years, their entire career at the magazine. And so I was like, let me just look around and see you know, what else is out there and think about going back to school for something that's maybe a little more stable than journalism at this time. And that's how I kind of came upon becoming a dietitian. And at that point, I had spent, you know, six or seven years covering food and nutrition really um, intensively and had learned a lot about that. So I I knew that I wanted that to be um, something that, you know, was involved in my future career and being a dietitian and also getting i got a masters in public health um public health nutrition that seemed you know like a good idea at the time and of course at the time i was also very much drinking the Kool-Aid of this idea that we have a quote unquote obesity epidemic and i have to help stop it and so that was part of what drove me back to school to become a dietitian and kind of like secretly this little thing in the back of my mind being like maybe that'll be the key to finally losing weight you know maybe that'll be the key to to changing my body permanently
0: oh and we will definitely get into that a little bit later but thank you for my
1: segue because I was going (laughs) to ask you did you grow up as a skinny kid I did yeah yeah so I was always I was um you know was on the smaller side I was never sort of terrifyingly skinny I was always just like a small kid and um At various points, I did like around age 13 or so, I got a growth spurt and my body didn't fill out yet. It hadn't caught up yet. So I was kind of gawky. And my best friend's mom, I remember, was calling me around that time like a human garbage disposal because I would just come over and like eat everything in the house. And I would eat all these things that she deemed to be too fattening to keep around. But I, yeah, basically had, you know, the sort of privilege of being a smaller bodied person. My body size was never something that was. Remarked upon, other than to say, like, "Oh, you're so small," you know, um, it was never some. It was never a point of uh, concern for anybody. I was never told to lose weight by a doctor. I was never um, made fun of for my size, except for like my sister and I insult, you know, jokingly, like quote unquote jokingly insulted each other by calling each other fat, even at that age. Yeah, which really I think speaks to how much you know diet culture. Gets in our heads and makes us makes everybody fat phobic in this culture. Even if you're in a thin body, like my sister and I were, nobody had ever um, legitimately called us fat or insulted us. You know, by like insulting by by calling us larger bodied, um, but we perceived that as an insult and we hurled it at each other as an insult because we really had these internalized ideas, these fat phobic beliefs that we had grown up with. So. I feel like if I hadn't grown up a skinny kid,
0: I probably wouldn't have been as bold as I was. And I say was because I've definitely lost some of that confidence that I once had growing up in just the things that I've had to go through in life and the way that I've been treated in some situations. And now I'm working on building back my confidence because I don't want to rely anymore on my appearance to give me confidence, if that makes sense. And I really do think that if it hadn't been for the fact that I grew up skinny, I just don't know how I would have coped with just the simple struggles of being a teenager. And of course, it didn't help that I was constantly reminded about how cute and tiny I was all the time. And so looking back, my young adulthood would have been totally different had I, if I had to worry about weight issues. I honestly don't know
1: how I would have done it. Yeah, I fully agree. And I think that is why there's something called thin privilege, you know, just like there's white privilege, there's male privilege, there's able-bodied privilege, like any sort of, um, you know, issue that someone can have, yeah. like where they deviate from. An advantage. Exactly. Any advantage yeah. that you have is privilege. Exactly. I sometimes get people saying when I use the term thin privilege, people are like, does that mean you're saying it's good to be thin? You shouldn't be saying that, like, you know, kind of sort of misinterpreting the idea of thin privilege. And that's it's not to say that it's good at all, just like it's not to say that it's good at all to be white or male or able bodied. But just the way that our society is confers unearned advantages on people who fit those um, profiles and confers, uh, you know, unfair disadvantages on people who fall outside of that, so. But we're also not
0: saying that it's shameful to be skinny or thin or a white person. Right. But we do have to acknowledge the fact that there is a privilege that comes with being a thin, small-sized human who doesn't have to worry about the societal pressures of being small and, quote, fit or, quote, healthy. And I mean, we're going to talk more about this diet culture mentality later, but... Let's talk about the role that food played in our lives. Like for me, food was a part of every emotion. It's like you had a party, you had to have food. If somebody died, you have to have food. Uh, Whenever we would get together as a family, somebody brought food. It was just everywhere and it it was a positive feeling to have food around. What was it like
1: for you? Yeah, it was was very much a source of pleasure and I remember, um, generally being, you know, happy in my relationship with food growing up for the most part. Like it was it was a source of connection. Um, I mean, I didn't realize until later how uh, problematic it is for some people, you know, how some people have such fraught relationships with food. It wasn't until I was in my early 20s and started struggling with my own relationship with food that I was like, oh, <laughs> I, get, I get how many people struggle like this. And I sort of was able to connect with people over that struggle. But before that, I just was like blissfully oblivious almost. And thank you for another great segue. So I was
0: gonna ask you, you started struggling with your body image after college. How does that happen to someone who grew up as a skinny kid? Can you tell me a little bit about what it was like for you?
1: Yeah, I think this is like such a fascinating thing because I had grown up with thin privilege and never really thought about the size of my body. And then I went away to uh, study abroad my junior year of college. And I had been on a birth control pill, like one type of birth control pill um, for a year or something like that. And then I was going away for a year. So my doctor was like, well, you know, I have like, Uh, 12 months worth of samples of this other kind of pill, like a different kind of pill than I had been on. Do you want to just take them so that you can have like free birth control while you're gone? I was like, yes, please. I'm a broke college student. Of course I want to do that. (laughs) And um, it just happened that this different type of pill made me gain some weight. And it happened pretty quickly because, you know, with medication changes, sometimes that can happen where your body just responds with rapid um, fluctuations. And so, you know, it was just, I didn't really understand the the kind of cause and effect relationship of like birth control with changes in body size or really water retention too i think that was largely what it was and so um i was like well i i have to lose weight you know instead of like my solution quote unquote solution and feeling like, you know, instead of just buying new clothes in larger size and being like, okay, well, this is my body now. And I guess it changed in response to this pill, whatever, was my my response instead was to be like, this is bad, this is terrible. I need to do something about this. I need to lose weight, which of course comes from everything we internalize from diet culture. Cause even when you're a thin kid growing up, you know, you get those messages, right? Like you're it's like Nobody nobody can escape those messages in our culture and and thin people are not um, the object of as many of those uh, messages. Like we're not told to lose weight by our doctors, we're not put on diets, but we all know someone who was. We all know, we all hear stories about like, oh, so-and-so has a weight problem or, um, you know, this person needs to lose weight, right? But we're
0: also constantly being told, and this goes for people of all sizes, you're not good enough. Do better.
1: Mm -hmm. And maybe that was part of what you were going through. It totally was. Yeah, because it was I mean, I, I had always like you said, you know, I had also felt like I wasn't good enough in many other arenas that just didn't happen to have to do with my body because I had thin privilege. But I always felt like, you know, I'm not um, like whatever, you know, like a million things that I thought about myself. Right. Um, and so once I gained a little bit of weight, then it was like, OK, just add that to the mix, like add that to the list of things that I'm not good enough about.
0: Did you have people around you who made you feel like you weren't good enough?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think um, I think I inherited a lot of perfectionism from my parents and in some ways, it's been useful, you know, it was they were very achievement oriented and sort of pushed me to be that way, too. And I think I have been very successful in like academics and jobs as a result of that. And a couple of people in my family actually have uh, undiagnosed PTSD and are very um, or were very anxious as a result and very kind of volatile personalities um they would react you know in a big angry way or you never you had to sort of walk on eggshells around them and so when you're a kid and you can't really see like oh that's his shit like that's coming from him sorry i don't know if i can swear on this podcast (laughs) (laughs) you're fine (laughs) (laughs) thank you that's his stuff you know um That's like, you know, you can't kids internalize it as, oh, I'm bad. I'm the like, I must have done something wrong and, you know, start obsessing about what they're doing and what they can change and how they can make people around them happy. When was that moment that
0: you said, enough, I have to make a change? When did you turn the corner?
1: Yeah, it really wasn't until I was in school to become a dietitian. So, oh,
0: so it was many years
1: later. Many years later. Yeah. I mean, what I what really happened was I kind of muddled through and got over the worst, like the worst of my really spiraled into an eating disorder fairly quickly after I started dieting in at the end of college. And was getting worse and worse. And I was trying to reach out for help. I was, I I saw a therapist who said that my weight wasn't low enough and I couldn't possibly have an eating disorder. And so of course that, yep. (laughs) And that is a common, unfortunately, a very common thing that, you know, people, and I mean, I've always been in a smaller body. I was not, you know, my body size never changed that much. Even when I gained a little weight from the birth control, I was still objectively like in the smaller side of the BMI curve. But you know, when I was starting to try to lose weight and diet and stuff, my my mom actually was like, I am concerned about you. I feel like you're you're looking really skinny. Is everything okay? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm fine. Um, but told my then therapist about it and said, you know, my my mom's concerned about me. Like my, some of my friends have said things, you know, and I don't know, like I maybe I have an eating disorder. I'm not sure, but I, I don't feel like there's anything wrong, you know, kind of like, trying to open the door and trying to ask for help in a way. There was a lot of denial, but there was also like, why am I even telling her this if yeah. I don't kind of want to talk about it, you know? Um, and instead of like letting me open the door further or helping me sort of draw out like what was really going on, she just shut it down. And she was like, well, you're not, you're not a, she actually said, you're not a slight person. Um, you're like, whatever that means, you know, like, you're not, you're not like, Enough to be to you know be concerning people. So I don't think you have an eating disorder.
0: Oh wow, this reminds me of that story from one of your guests who was on your podcast. Um, she mentioned that she had gone to the doctor and she was. Well, she is a bigger person, or is it is it appropriate to say fat? Because I've noticed that some people have mm-hmm. reclaimed that word and are actually using that to describe themselves.
1: Yeah, I know it's the terminology is interesting because the way I see it is like a thinner person talking about body size. Right. If someone identifies as fat and they embrace that term and reclaim that term from themselves, and I use that, and I think I know who you're talking about. I think it was Carissa and a King. Maybe, I think right? so. Yeah. Yeah. So she identifies as fat, so you can say fat for her. Okay. But also then sometimes for people listening, you know, everybody's got their own. Sort of experience with that. And like for people who are in a larger body but don't identify, like haven't reclaimed the word fat, don't like the word fat, or have had it used against them in a really traumatic way and are not ready to kind of label themselves as that, it can be hurtful to hear that. So it's really, it's really a delicate kind of conversation. So, yes. Also, something else I want to talk about on another
0: episode. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> But let me get back to the story. So she had mentioned that she went to the doctor because she wasn't feeling well because she was in a very restrictive diet. She was trying to lose a lot of weight and she was basically starving herself. Mm-hmm. I mean, to the point where she would come home and go straight to bed after work because she mentioned she didn't have any energy. And when she told the doctors that she was having this issue and told them exactly what she was eating, the doctor said, you don't have an eating disorder. Totally. <laughs> you're You're good. Because she was apparently too big to have an eating disorder. I know, it's ridiculous, right? It is, and it was also an eye-opening moment for me because, I mean, I always used to think that people were Mm -hmm. fat because they didn't know how to eat properly or because they didn't exercise or because they weren't disciplined enough. And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people in our society still think that. And that's also why I wanted to bring you on the show to discuss these topics, because I had my own moment of awakening last year when I started to realize my own biases and how those biases were also reflecting on my self-esteem. And I've been learning a lot about body positivity. And even though I really, truly believe that it's important to eat healthy or eat, you know, not eat crap, and it's important to exercise and take care of my body. I still, at the core, struggle with the fact that I think I have to be skinny to feel the most confident. I mean, <laughs> does that make me a total narcissistic lost cause? Oh like, my God. What is happening? No. Why is it so hard for me to understand that it doesn't really matter what size my body is, that yeah. I'm still me? It's like no matter what I read, I still can't make myself understand that it's
1: okay to love myself as I am. I know. I think that's so normal and understandable in this culture. You're so not alone. You're so not a narcissist. You know, it's not <laughs> like I think it's totally not about that. It's it's that, you know, we're steeped in diet culture. We're steeped in this culture. And and really what I mean by diet culture is it's a system of beliefs that um, promotes weight loss as a means of attaining higher status and moral virtue. And demonizes some foods while elevating others and equates thinness and particular body shapes and muscularity as to to health and morality. And so like this system of beliefs it's something that we're born into. and, in Western culture, it's very pervasive. And then within, you know, specific cultural groups, it'll have certain ways that it shows up, you know, different kind of particular flavors of diet culture in different cultural groups. But um, it really, the system of beliefs, the system of thinking about bodies actually goes back to racist roots in the mid 1800s. So, I'm writing about um, the history of diet culture for my book. And it's so interesting to look at it because, really, before the 1800s, before like the mid 1800s, there really was no concerted idea that larger bodies were bad or that um, it was bad for your health to be fat or anything like that. It was, um, there was a brief period actually in the, the Greek and Roman times when. Um, fatness was equated to, uh, ill health, but also there were a million other things that they were equating to poor health too. And in fact, there's some evidence showing that about 80% of cultures in human history have preferred a female aesthetic that was larger bodied, curvier, you know, like we would consider fat today. And so, like, why is it that our specific moment in time in this culture is so preferring thinner bodies and so demonizing of fat bodies? Well, it actually goes back to, like, this sort of window in the mid-1800s where a bunch of different things were going on. There was, like, the Industrial Revolution was happening, and Charles Darwin was doing his writing around, around that time, sort of the early to mid-1800s into the late-1800s. And a lot of evolutionary biologists were kind of following suit and... And they came up with this ridiculous idea that um, larger bodies were more associated with people of color and um, people like the non-aristocratic people, you know, the sort of poor people around the world. And with women, that that was those were the sort of groups that were seeing they, they saw to have more incidents of larger bodies. And therefore, their idea was that being larger bodied meant that you were further down on the evolutionary hierarchy because they believed that white men, white European men, were at the top. And guess who was doing the categorizing? Surprise, surprise. It was white European (laughs) men, men, right? (laughs) So like, yeah, so they put themselves at the top and it was like, you know, a, a rung down the ladder was white European northern European women and then white Southern European men, then white Southern European women, and you know, so on and so forth, sort of down the ladder of how they categorize people's evolutionary status, quote unquote. And they put like black folks and people of color at the bottom of the list, like black and indigenous people were at the bottom of the evolutionary hierarchy. And then they did all this sort of classification to try to see well what are the traits how can we tell if someone is more or less evolved this goes into like you know phrenology where they would measure people's heads to try to see like how smart they were different characteristics is very similar it was you know in the same vein as that where they were looking at they're measuring like the size of people's nose the size of people's butts the size of people's uh you know waist circumference and things like that and through that process of like this this you know, bogus categorization of people into so-called more evolved or less evolved states, they determined, okay, well, fatness is associated with uncivilized, quote-unquote, or barbaric, quote-unquote, people who are less evolved and therefore, you know, fat is bad, basically. And, mm, so, th- and so the downward spiral began. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like that idea started to trickle out into the culture. And that still has implications today in the sense that like, Black, Indigenous, and people of color who are larger bodied have more stigma that they face. You know, there's intersections of stigma that they face um, versus, you know, white folks who are larger bodied or white folks who are smaller bodied. Wow. So we totally just turned the corner and
0: didn't even get to finish your story. (laughs) (laughs) But I want to go back to that. We left off at you telling the therapist that you thought you had an eating disorder and she ignored it. What happened after that? Did things get better or worse?
1: Yeah. So, so it did get worse after that. Definitely. Like that first attempt to get help being sort of thwarted, um, drove me further into the eating disorder and it, just kind of happened, I think, you know, serendipity that I was working with this guy who had a big crush on who was a food writer at the at the weekly, the newspaper that I was working at. And his one of his beats was food. And I, you know, I really wanted to be with him. And he was kind of interested in having a foodie, like a cool foodie girlfriend who'd go on adventures with him. And you know, eat different foods and stuff. And so I was like, you know what, I'm going to be that person for him. I'm going to like put aside this disordered behavior that I'm doing, all these restrictions, all of this overexercise and just, you know, extreme dieting behavior that I was doing. I was like, I'm not going to let that be a part of this relationship. And on my own time, I'm going to do that. Like I did, you know, when I wasn't spending time with him, I overexercised and sort of, comp- you know, tried to compensate. But when I was with him, it was almost like exposure therapy. You know, it was like I was I was forced to kind of get out of my comfort zone and go do these things. And I just like hid the part of myself that was disordered and was like, yep, I'm awesome. I'm having a great time. You know? uh-huh. like, <laughs> so you were in cool girl mode. Oh, the cool girl attitude. I know it's a it's a real double edged sword. <laughs> so yes. that was kind of the first little step out of it. But I definitely wasn't fully recovered by any means by the time I applied to go back to school to be a dietitian, but I was further away from the depths of the eating disorder. And when I went back to school, we had um, one of my early classes in the dietetics program was we had to weigh ourselves, measure ourselves, measure our like uh, wrist circumference and do all these calculations to describe, to see like, what is your ideal body weight? But I had this moment where I did that exercise and I was like, oh crap, like this, this exercise is telling me that I am supposed to be a significantly lower weight than I am. And I've never been that weight in my adult life, except in my eating disorder, like, except in the most restrictive point of my eating disorder. Like, what the hell, you know? And I was like, okay, so I could either, you know, go back to that overly restrict you know extremely restrictive over exercising um, not eating enough kind of place that I was to try to get to that weight or i could just throw out this idea that there is an ideal body weight or that that applies to me and try to find another way and i ra- i grappled with that for a little while maybe a, a few days or a week or something i was definitely very triggered by the experience but i kind of came down on the side of like well screw it like this is not you know this doesn't actually mean anything because the only time that I was that weight was when I was extremely, extremely unhealthy, like extremely disordered about food. I was having all kinds of other health problems as a as a result. I like missed my I didn't have my period for over a year. I was, you know, had my hair falling out, all these different things that were, you know, clearly a result of the starvation. And so I was like, I had enough Sort of sense at that point, and enough um, maybe self love at that point too to say, I'm just going to throw that out. And it just so happened that I had been working on a book proposal about emotional eating at the time, and um, when I was back in school, I was still writing and stuff, and I I was working on a proposal of my own for a book that I never ended up writing. But that led me to discover the book Intuitive Eating, and when I read that, I really connected to oh, this is the way that I ate growing up. This is the way that like it makes so much sense to me to go back to eating this way. And so after I had that experience of, you know, being super triggered in that class, intuitive eating just became what I did. Like I, I pretty soon after that, I think I threw out my scale. I deleted my calorie tracker apps. I started really trying to eat intuitively again.
0: Wow. That is yeah. quite the journey. And it took you many years to get out of that.
1: Yeah, this was years. I mean, I think it was it was over a decade by the time I was fully, fully recovered. So, yeah.
0: Wait, hold up.
1: Before we go any further,
0: I have something very important to ask you. Will you share this podcast with your friends? It's very easy to share the love by either texting a direct link to this episode or posting a screenshot and link to the show on your preferred social media platform. Make sure you tell them why you want them to listen. Thanks for your support. Now back to the show. So you've mentioned on your podcast that diet culture has, I guess, for business purposes,
1: transformed over the last few years. What do you mean by that? So diet culture has shape-shifted in the 21st century also to what I call the wellness diet, where... Now diets don't want to say their diets it's the it's not a lifestyle change or it's not a diet it's a lifestyle change diet uh, it's not a diet it's wellness you know but it's still about like policing what people eat and how, manipulating their bodies to look a certain way and of course that way is thin usually young usually white able-bodied usually cisgender you know it's it's this very oppressive picture of what health supposedly looks like so are you saying that we should all stop?
0: I guess, caring so much about keeping an eye on what we eat or keeping an eye on how much we exercise? Because this is where the confusion comes Mm -hmm. in for me. Yeah. Is it bad that I tell myself that I need to eat healthy? Is it bad that I tell myself that I should exercise? I mean, I really think that there should be a balance if that's what you really want.
1: I would say it's it's all in how you're approaching it, because the way that diet culture frames healthy is pretty oppressive if you're wanting to eat healthy the way that diet culture wants you to eat healthy where it's like oh i have to cut out gluten and dairy and i can't have this and i can't have that and i should be drinking more green smoothies and you know ah like that sort of anxious anxious relationship with food that is a problem and i i would definitely recommend letting go of that you know so the the antidote to that is intuitive eating which is what I practice and teach. And intuitive eating is our birthright. It's really the default mode, as I always say. It's how we're born, knowing how to eat and relate to food. And intuitive eating has ten principles and the last principle you know, way down on the list is um, gentle nutrition. And so it's about paying, you know, some gentle attention to what you eat in order to feel good, to feel energized, not getting into all the fads like, oh, I have to cut out gluten even though I don't have celiac disease, or I have to cut out dairy because I think it makes my eczema flare, but I don't really know. And I've never been diagnosed, but, uh. you know, it's, it's not that. Gentle nutrition is not that. It's just, you know, learning sort of basic principles of like how to create a meal that is balanced and satisfying, making sure you're eating. Eating enough to to sustain yourself, maybe adding in more snacks, you know, having some fruits and vegetables because they help you feel good and they also taste good and learning ways of preparing them that taste good, you know? So that piece of it, that part, like if you want to call that quote unquote healthy eating, which I don't even really do because I think the word healthy has been so thoroughly co-opted by diet culture. But if you're do, if you're thinking of it in that way, then I think it does have a place in a balanced relationship with food and a peaceful relationship with food. But I think that you know the reason it's the tenth principle, the reason it is so far into the intuitive eating journey that we even talk about nutrition is because diet culture like has its tentacles completely intertwined with how we think about nutrition in this society. Nutrition in Western culture is pretty much diet culture. So for the most part, so to to get back to a place where we can think about nutrition in a way that is truly empowering and compatible with an intuitive relationship with food means disentangling all these beliefs that we have about it. So the first principle of intuitive eating is reject the diet mentality, which is basically the diet mentality is really the way that diet culture shows up in your brain. It's like how diet culture has colonized your mind. And so kicking the diet mentality out is a process and it takes a long time. So I'm really not surprised, actually, that you say, you know, it's been about a year that you've been working on this and thinking about this and you're still having some you know, struggles and kind of wrestling with things in your mind. Because, of course, like it's that's the hardest part, actually, is, you know, getting rid of the diet mentality.
0: Yeah, that mentality is kind of hard to get rid of when you've been told your whole life that it's it's not okay to be fat. And I feel like I live a pretty healthy lifestyle, like, and I'm using that term by, to I'm using that term to mean that I eat intuitively, I eat a variety of foods that are good for me that feel good on my body. I don't eat crap, or I try not to. And I work out, but I don't make it a point to work out all the time, or I'm not on a very strict uh, workout regimen. So I constantly feel like I'm not necessarily doing enough and a part of me says, who cares? As long as I feel good and I can do the things that I enjoy in life, I can walk, I can reach, I can bend over, I can do my yoga and I don't feel you know, pain doing that, then I'm good. But there's always this voice in the back of my mind saying, don't get fat, but uh, moving on. Give us some facts and figures on diet culture
1: and the effects that it has on our society. It's a $66 million operation, the diet industry. Um, but actually, if you take into account like the wellness industry as well, the worldwide market for, quote unquote, healthy eating, nutrition and weight loss is a staggering $648 billion. So, you know, oh, hundreds wow. of billions of dollars. So, yeah, like that is pretty scary because... You know, it means that so many people are dieting. And in fact, um, 68 percent of Americans have dieted for some length of time in recent years, mostly making up their own weight loss plans or quote unquote lifestyle changes rather than just following a formal diet plan Um, and disordered eating. So, you know, I, I talked about how I had an eating disorder that was really undiagnosed and then, you know, give or take 10 years of like disordered eating coming out of that. And there, there's some research showing like a 2008 study found that 65% of American women have some form of disordered eating and another 10% would actually meet the criteria for a full-blown eating disorder, although far fewer are actually diagnosed. So altogether, 75% of American women have disordered eating or, or an eating disorder. And, you know, I mention that statistic sometimes to people and they're like, that sounds low, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> it does. people are more likely to have a disordered relationship with food than they are to have something like a food allergy, which the incidence of that is in the single digits. Um like celiac disease, right? That's like 1% of the population. Even though everybody thinks they have a food allergy. Everybody thinks they do. And so I would say that like if you think you have a food allergy, you're much more likely to have disordered eating. And disordered eating can actually cause a lot of the symptoms that people blame on food allergies or intolerances. And then following the diet that is supposed to correct the so-called allergy or intolerance actually makes things worse. So, for example, some of those... Um, Issues can be like digestive issues, you know, constipation, diarrhea, gas, bloating, um, all of those things can be caused by disordered eating by not eating enough or by restricting and binging or by eating really erratically um or by eating so much, like being so concerned about, quote unquote, clean eating that you eat all kinds of like fibrous foods and really not enough foods that are actually energy dense. So like you're eating, you know, cups and cups of fruits and vegetables every day, or you're eating all kinds of things with added fiber to them. You're trying to do the so-called whole food plant-based thing that can actually make you incredibly gassy, bloated, constipated, have diarrhea. And then those things get blamed on, you know, oh my God, I'm not eating clean enough. I have a food intolerance. I need to restrict more, which then further exacerbates the problem. Same with like period issues. You know, a lot of Women will stop having their period or have irregular periods or infertility, and there is a significant number of people who are actually um, just not eating enough to support a recurring period. Their um, you know, body fat stores have gotten too low for them, and so th- it could be from overexercise, it could be from undereating or a combination of the two. It can also be from stress and the stress of worrying about your food, even if you're not like technically restricting, if you're just constantly worrying and ruminating about it, or maybe you're restricting and then binging um, can also cause fertility issues.
0: I know it's like this vicious cycle that people end up in. And I will count myself in Mm -hmm. that group of people you read something online that says maybe Mm -hmm. you're allergic to something, so you stop eating it, but you've never actually been tested medically, so you have no idea. Meanwhile, you're restricting yourself. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't help when there are people out there telling us that we're doing the right thing, people with authority. So what
1: can we do to shift the way that we think about our bodies and food? Yeah, it's a really slow process, like you said, you know, it's I think the first step is starting to unlearn some of these messages like you know, listening to my podcast. I have some kind of starter episodes that I think are really good. Like episode 127 is an introduction to intuitive eating and health at every size. Um, and just starting to immerse yourself in this anti-diet world and this, this idea of life beyond diet culture. You don't have to necessarily agree with it or change anything you're doing at the outset. But I think just starting to consider it, starting to... Um, you know, give yourself a different way of thinking, expose yourself to a different way of thinking is really important and helpful. And that's the first that's step. That's what we're all about here at Diferente. That's awesome. Yeah, different. Right. Exactly. Like, you know, exposing yourself to something Diferente. And that's right. <laughs> then I think the, the next principle of intuitive eating really is um, learning to eat when you're hungry, learning to not just not only eat when you're hungry, but honor your hunger. Right. So instead of suppressing hunger or ignoring hunger or demonizing hunger, the way that we're all taught to in diet culture, it's about recognizing hunger, even at its subtle levels and saying, what do I need? Let me let me feed myself. Let me give myself the nourishment that my body is asking for. And oftentimes people will end up, you know, eating when they're hungry and then eating past fullness as well. And that's okay. That's completely normal in the beginning stages because when you've been restricted and deprived of food, we don't allow ourselves to eat enough. And so our bodies think that they're in a famine and they're they're programmed to end up eating more and sort of, you know, quote unquote overeat. Um, when in fact, it's actually our bodies trying to replenish themselves and restore the the nutrients that they're missing.
0: What are some of the pitfalls or maybe mistakes that we're making every day that make it hard for us to make peace with our bodies and what we eat?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say it's not necessarily a mistake because we're all told that it's the right way. But now that we know that it's not the right way, we can start making changes. So one of those things is like following what your what media is telling you, what like nutrition and health media says, right? So, you know, the people that are that are constantly trafficking and telling you what to eat and how much to eat and what foods to cut out and stuff like that. Like stop listening to them, <laughs> you know? That's that's I think <laughs> the biggest thing. And, you know, yes, we're sitting here having a conversation about how to eat and stuff, but it's not about like I'm not sitting here telling you, "Oh, you should really be cutting out Blah, blah, blah. Anyone who's telling you to, to take to cut stuff out or restrict yourself in any way, I think, is someone to start looking askance at.
0: I think it's awesome that you've set out on this journey to help people reclaim their relationship with food. But <laughs> I was just thinking about some of our listeners and... Uh, If they're anything like me, they might be thinking, this is all great and helpful information, but uh, how is this going to make me skinny? (laughs) How would you respond to that question?
1: Yeah, I mean, really, I would respond to that question with a question, which is like, why is it so important to be skinny, and what do you think skinny means? What does that mean to you? And really, when you dig under that for people, it's it's not just about the body size. It's about what we've been told the body size means, right? It's like, well, it means I'll be happy. It means I'll be able to find love. It means I'll be accepted. It means I'll feel good about myself. You know, it's these deeper things that we really want, and we have been told and sold this lie that skinny is the way to achieve those things but really when we take skinny out of the equation we can actually achieve those things on their own and start working towards those things without the sort of false mediator of body size change like i said the yo-yo dieting cycle actually puts people's health at greater risk and so Can we just take out this pursuit of a thin body and go for the things that you really want, that you think the thin body means, but that actually you're able to achieve and attain totally without pursuing thinness in the first place? Oh, that is deep. (laughs) No,
0: you're right. You make a really good point because I don't think that people are necessarily pursuing just a thin body. I think people pursue what comes with a thin body. It's the side effects Mm -hmm. of being thin that people are attracted to. But uh, newsflash, being thin does not make you happy. I mean, I'm thin and I still have a whole lot of problems. (laughs) (laughs) But it's so true, though. (laughs) And that's why I'm so glad that you were able to be on Diferentes so that we could talk about some of these topics. Because I know I'm not the only one who grew up thinking that... Uh, you know, we had to be a certain way or that being thin was the only route to happiness and to acceptance and that being healthy doesn't mean being in a small body, you know, that's something that if nothing else, I hope that people listening can at least walk away with the confidence to question the messages that we get out there about what society's standards are and what we should be living up to, you know, Mm -hmm. So I think I told you I read this book last year that had me really believing in this bullshit rhetoric that being fat was an issue of discipline and just being lazy. Can you explain to people why that's not true for a lot of people out there. Sure. And don't get me wrong. like I do believe that discipline will get you to a lot of the goals that you want to meet. But when it comes to weight, I do think that the issue is probably a lot more complex than we think.
1: Yeah. So I think, yeah, the diet culture really sells us the lie that people who are fat are that way because they're lazy, because they've cho- made poor choices, quote unquote. And the reality is that pretty much anyone I've ever worked with, anyone I've ever known in a larger body has been on more diets, more quote-unquote healthy lifestyle changes than I can count or than they can count. It's it's a testament to the fact that diets don't work, that shrinking your body, that efforts at intentional weight loss don't work, and that in fact, in the long run, it actually is more likely that you're going to gain more weight than you lost on a diet. So, you know, to stop that to stop that cycle and to say I'm not going to diet anymore really is an act of self-care. And I know that diet culture throws so much at people that like tells them they're lazy, tells them they're bad. It's it's all kinds of horrible stereotypes and stigma and discrimination against people in larger bodies. I think that, you know, anyone who is in this place of feeling like fat means lazy, means bad, means never getting what you want, um, a mindset shift is really important in in starting to look at, actually, I am able to achieve those things. And the forces that are telling me I can't, the forces that are, that are telling you that being fat is bad, are actually oppressive forces that are just as harmful as racism, sexism, homophobia, and all the rest.
0: Oh, yeah. We're going to have to do another episode and dig deeper into the roots of fat phobia, because that's super interesting to me as well. But I have two
1: more questions for you. What is your passion and how do you define success? Yeah, so I think my passion, I mean, different passions in different areas of my life, but the the passion that's sort of the most relevant here is is definitely spreading the word about why diet culture is so harmful to people and That there is an alternative and that we don't have to pursue this futile attempt at shrinking our bodies for our whole lives. And we don't have to have our lives stolen from us by that pursuit. And how I define success, gosh, I mean, I would say, you know, it's being able to have a a sense of purpose, be able to affect change in whatever way is given to you, whatever way feels like you're calling, and also have a balanced life with that. Head
0: over to our website, diferentepodcast.com to find resources on this topic and learn more about Christie's work and podcast, Food Psych. If this episode inspired you, please share it with someone who needs to hear it too. Join us this week on Instagram or Facebook at Diferente Podcast, where we will be sharing stories of people who are loving themselves and their bodies. And use the hashtag Live Diferente to share your own inspiring story about body positivity. I'm Maribel Casada smith Catch you next week. Thank you for listening to Diferente. If you like this episode, let me know by leaving a five-star review and by sharing a screenshot of this podcast on Instagram or Facebook. Just don't forget to tag me at Adiferente Life so I can know you're listening. Hasta pronto!